0: Well, a time of reckoning can be a time of rejoicing It can also be a time of stress. When I was younger, I took a class in the book of Proverbs, and the the professor told us uh, at the very beginning of the semester, he said, 90% of your grade is going to be based on a project. He said, you're going to have all semester to do it. And the project was pretty simple as far as the instructions. He said, I want you to take every verse in Proverbs, and I want you to categorize it Topically, and he says, you know, he said you can do it however you want. You can handwrite it on uh, notebook paper. You can type it all out. He says, but it needs to have clear divisions. If it's talking about finances, if it's talking about moral purity, whatever it is, he said you come up with the topics. But he says you've got all semester to do it, and uh, it's ninety percent of your grade. Well, I remember when uh, it was about, about a week before the semester was over, the, the assignment was due. And, and I remember thinking how excited I was to get to school that day and turn in that notebook because I thought, you know, it's, it's not going to be, you know, graded on really whether uh, I did a, the appropriate job of getting it in the right category. Every verse was in there. I had checked them off as I went through. I knew I had met the qualifications, but I remember sitting outside before we went in and uh, talking to one of my classmates, and he was just writhing in stress. And you can guess why. He had put this off and put this off, and he had not completed the project. He was not looking forward to the same thing, the exact same event that I was very excited about. Well, you know what? Even more so as we think about the approaching of the final outcome of time and ushering into eternity. It can be a time of great rejoicing if you're prepared. But to say the least, it will be a very stressful time. It'll be a time of duress for those that have squandered their opportunities and the approach of the gospel to them and God's working in their life. And they have not taken and been a good steward of that, and, uh, and it's going to be a horrible outcome. Well, as we look at the text that Brother Wilson read for us this morning in Daniel chapter 12, and we're going to be focusing primarily on just the beginning part, we're talking about the time of the end, the time of the end. chapter begins with this thrilling image of Michael, we also refer to him as Michael the archangel. We know that as we read through Scripture and study out angelology, that uh, there does seem to be some rankings and some job descriptions that are given to these created spirit beings by God Himself. And uh, we see Michael the archangel coming to the defense of the Jewish people here in this text. And this will happen during a time of trouble, we're told here in Daniel chapter 12 in verse 1, which we know in other passages of Scripture to be the seven-year tribulation period that is still yet future for us. hasn't happened yet. Uh, it's still out there. We know that based on other prophetic texts like 1 Thessalonians 4 that uh, it will come after the church uh, has been raptured out of this world. It will usher in that period of seven-year tribulation, It'll be led by a worldwide figurehead we call the Antichrist, also called the Man of Sin. But the Time of Trouble will have a special focus on the last three and a half years because that will be uh, a time of where the Antichrist turns on Israel. He'll he'll play nice for them and be their friend, uh, at least on the surface. But then he turns on them, desecrates their temple and uh, he, is, he is not friendly to them anymore. It's actually possible that Michael the angel that's being described here has been designated all along to be the head protector of Israel, of the Jewish people within the spiritual realm of things. You know, if we could pull back the veil and, and look beyond what we can just see with our physical eyes and study history to know that uh, we do... You know, not just wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and and here is a text that reveals this to us. but back in Daniel chapter ten, verse thirteen, you might have remembered that it was Michael that went head to head with Satan, who himself received kind of a a title of an earthly nature. He was called the Prince of Persia, and Persia, of course, was the dominant world kingdom at that time, and so Uh, What better uh, person to put in charge of trying to control uh, the the pagan society of the world power than Satan himself? Well, uh, Satan is trying to prevent the word of God to come to Daniel, and and Michael ends up in this spiritual warfare. We don't know exactly what that looks like. You know, artists have tried to draw pictures of a sword fight, if you would, between uh, Michael and Daniel. and the prince of Persia being Satan. But there's other passages. For instance, Jude chapter 1 and verse 9 tells us that it was Michael who contended again with the devil about the body of Moses. Remember, Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, and and God uh, led him to see it from Mount Pisgah, but then God did a personal funeral for Moses, and nobody knows where Moses was buried exactly, probably a good thing, because you can imagine what people would do if they found the graveside of Moses. They would inappropriately worship him. They'd probably try to dig it up. They'd probably t- try to sell the dirt as holy ground. Who knows, okay? And, uh, but Satan tried to get the body of, of, uh, of Moses, and Michael was dispatched. And of course, Moses was the figurehead for Israel at that time, the lawgiver. And so also in Revelation 12 and verse 7, Michael will once again go up against the great dragon, who's just another description of Satan, when he is going after Israel. So three passages of scripture. I think it's safe to say there's something special about uh, Michael being designated to be the protector of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And so there's a definite Jewish flavor to what's going on here. And I've thrown out a couple times the term dispensationalism, the idea that God works at various times and in various ways and in different ways with different groups of people. And so we know that God loves Israel. He's made covenants with Israel. There's no doubt about that. We know that they've been broken off like a branch out of a tree. We know that they will be grafted back in. Paul teaches this in the book of Romans. We know that in this intervening time, we have the time of the Gentiles. We have the, uh, the church age, which we're a part of. And we know that when the church age is over, Jesus is going to come and rapture us up. His attention will turn back to the people of Israel during that seven-year period of time. And so therefore, that seven years, and specifically the last three and a half of it, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Because why? It has a singular focus on Israel. Jacob's other name was Israel, right? And so he's, he's kind of the father of the nation of Israel as far as patriarchs are concerned. Uh, this is going to be according to Jesus when he taught in Matthew 24, 21. It's a great tribulation in the sense that it's going to be very notable uh, it's, it's going to be very stirring. Uh, it'll be, according to verse 1 of what we're reading here, such as never was since there was a nation. And There's been a lot of wars, a lot of battles, a lot of uh, people coming after Israel even, but what's about to happen here that he's talking about is, uh, in, has no precedent with anything else that they have seen. But... It will also be during this time that thy people will be delivered according to this verse. There's always that hope, isn't there? Uh, God is so good to give us not just the dismal, the discouraging reality, but to say, wait, there's a rescue that is coming and it is certain. And so Daniel is getting a glimpse of all of this. It's, It's a glimpse of what the apostle John will get a glimpse of, 600 years later, when he's given the book of Revelation, just to kind of give you a time frame, you know, Daniel. And a lot of times when people study the book of Daniel, like we're doing, uh, they'll they'll do a study of Revelation. So we've looked at a lot of verses from Revelation, and today will be no exception to that as well. But Daniel here is seeing a devastating time. And uh, although there will be extreme casualties during this tribulation, a lot of carnage, uh, a lot of devastation to the world itself, a lot of loss of life, God wants us to know that there is more to come even when it seems like the final chapter has been written. Uh, There is good news, if you would. And that good news takes us into eternity beyond the conclusion of time here on earth you think that physical death pretty much terminates everything, but not where God is concerned. There are people out there that would like to believe when you ask them about, you know, well, what do you think happens to you after you die? And they believe in ionationalism, you know, they believe that they just, it's over, you know, that uh, when they draw their last breath, boom, that's it. Well, what happens there? Those t- people tend to think, I've got to get all I can for the time being. And they might be very selfish about that. They, they might try to make the greatest impact of being a humanitarian and kind to people, but they don't have any hope in their view about what happens after the casket is closed. And yet we'll see in this verses that we're going to look at this morning that there is more to come. Uh, the, The life, the soul, and the body of individuals is not just put into the ground to be no more. God focuses on three nuances of people's activity, and we're going to look specifically at the first three verses here. What are those nuances? Well, first of all, there are those who are going to wake up, and this is talking about the resurrection. Then we're going to talk about those individuals' who, secondly, are going to wise up. Uh, This is speaking of regeneration, people that come to the truth, and it is life-transforming. And then lastly, we're going to talk about those who watch out, specifically watching out for others. And this is talking about evangelization, caring for others who need to wise up as well, if we could put it that way. Well, let's talk about these groups, and I'm probably going to spend the majority of the time on the first group today, and that is those who wake up, the resurrection. That's definitely the theme of what's happening here. Uh, God wants Daniel and all of the readers of the Scripture to know that, again, uh, the body being put into the ground, the body being even you know, uh, burned up or whatever happens, that is not the end of it. It's interesting to see how it discusses it here in verse two. He says, "Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt." Now let me just say, the sum there doesn't mean that there means that there are also some that uh, this isn't going to happen to. Uh, if there is an exclusion, it would be those that are raptured up. And though he doesn't address it here, just for the veracity and the truthfulness of Scripture to realize there are some that are never going to be put in the ground, one way or the other. Uh, As one country preacher put it, instead of uh, meeting the undertaker, they're going to meet the upper taker. And that's kind of a, a quaint way of putting it. But it makes the point, doesn't it? But for the majority of people, uh, there's going to be a funeral service. There's going to be a laying in the ground, one way or the other, whether it's intentional or, or maybe there's a body lost at sea. Uh, wherever, it, wherever it goes, okay, it's not off the inventory list of God. Uh, if He knows the very numbers of our head, right, the hairs of our head, He certainly knows every molecule. Of DNA of every human being that's ever been on planet Earth. Isaiah 26, 19 talks about this same idea. And sometimes people are thinking, well, is it really talking about death? Because it's talking about sleep here. Well, notice what Isaiah 26, 19 says Thy dead men shall live. So we're definitely talking about physically dead people. And we're obviously talking about resurrection. Together with my dead body shall they arise. And then notice the the tone here of someone coming out of a nap, if you would. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And so we need to understand metaphorically, figure of speech if you would, you know, why would God decide to use waking out of sleep to be a picture of someone who is physically dead? Well, mostly so we can realize in God's power and in God's sovereignty, physical death is no more of a challenge to reverse than for you going in and waking up your spouse. Okay. And you said, have you tried to wake up my spouse? Okay. Uh, but you get the idea, right? I mean, there is a, an ability to rouse that person up and get them back on their feet again. It's just as easy for the Lord. In fact, Jesus raised a little girl, and, and he says, well, she's not dead to those that were mourning. She's just sleeping. And they mocked him until he took her by the hand and had her stand upright. And, you know, and she went on with life in that way. There is a distinction here in, in Daniel chapter 1, or Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, of two kinds of resurrections, and they're differentiated by the preposition to. Okay, notice again, he says, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and then it describes the two different groups, some two, everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so the word to is a preposition that has the idea of destination, doesn't it? If I say, I'm going to church, that's my destination. And so while both groups have destinations, the destinations are not the same here. And and the word of God is trying to help us to see that very clearly. One destination is for life. The other destination is a combo of shame and contempt. And that really goes together because uh, the shame, as we're going to see, is because of the failed responsible response to the opportunity to change the outcome of your destination and to end up in a place of contempt. Notice that for both groups... The ending destination is everlasting. Everlasting life, everlasting shame and contempt. In other words, there will never be a chance of changing the destinations once they are set. It's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment, Hebrews tells us. So then the question is, well, who goes where? There's two different destinations, right? to use the words of Christ when he was teaching in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, 41, at this judgment, it says, Then shall he say also unto them, this is talking about the Lord giving the judgment out, to those that are on the left hand, and remember, the right hand is the hand of blessing, the left hand was the hand of judgment in the economy of Israel, so... Those, that Jewish crowd that's listening to Jesus say this would understand exactly what he's talking about there. And so to those on his left hand, he says, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So originally that's the intent, Okay, this, this place of fire, this place of condemnation. And then it says to this group of people, and these shall go away. It's certain. There's not going to be a change. There's not a second, third chance. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. There again, you have the two elements of of unendingness, eternal life, everlasting punishment. And so what about these cursed people? It's seen in the word contempt. We talk about uh, someone having contempt for the law. Uh, It means that they don't have any respect towards the law, right? Sometimes you have an individual in a group and someone's trying to speak and they're jeering the speaker and they seem to be speaking contemptuously. Well, the contempt here is God towards the cursed, And you say, it's hard to imagine a loving God having contempt for those he's made in his own image. But, you know, these are individuals whom God has provided a way of escape. And they have had contempt for his beloved son. And so then rightly, God is going to have contempt for them. The cursed are so because they did not receive Christ by faith alone and rely on God's grace for salvation of their sin. You know, no one will be able to point the finger in God and say, you're not being fair, God. You know, God has given, in general revelation, the world to direct people that there is a divine creator. There's a master designer that should then cause them to seek out the truth and 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 those that will to know of the doctrine of Christ, the Bible says, they shall know. There's a way that God can give that revelation to people who are searching. But we know that the road of those people that choose truth, choose life, is a narrow road. And there's few that are on it. But there's a broad road that leads to destruction, and many are on that road, Jesus said. And so there's coming a great white throne judgment sat upon by Christ at the end of that seven-year tribulation and also at the end of the thousand years that follows it. So you got seven years, and then you have the battle of Armageddon. Jesus comes the second time to earth uh, with the host of the heavens with him, and then he reigns on earth for a thousand years, Christ does. But then there's a rebellion. And there are still those that will follow Satan when he's released at the end of that thousand years. And there's a final judgment, not just for the people that followed in that rebellion, but for all these curses that are being talked about here. Revelation 20, verse 12 says, and John is talking about this great white throne judgment. He says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the Jed were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. Well, what kind of works are we talking about? Say, it must be their really heinous crimes and sins. Maybe they murdered people. Yes, that would be included, wouldn't it? Maybe they were unfaithful in their marital relations, and so there's... Adultery going on here. And maybe there's all kinds of, of, of really uh, weird kind of sexual perverted sins going on here. But that would definitely be included in there. You know what else is included there? People that coveted. People who bore false witness, led people astray. Uh, Revelation 20 tells us that part of the group will be those that are just fearful fearful in the sense that they feared man and and what he thinks more than what God has directed and and said. And so for all these people who have their works, what they've done, and that's all they have is their deeds, they're going to be judged. You say, well, you know, maybe it's kind of like the scales. And, you know, if you talk to people about how do you believe you're going to get into heaven or not, you say, well, I hope so. I'm like, what are you depending on? Well, you know, hopefully my good weight outweigh my bad, right? Something like that. You know, I'm no, I haven't been perfect. Who has, right? They always follow it up with that, you know, but, but hopefully, you know, the Lord will see that I've really tried. But there's a great verse in Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes 7.20 that kind of cuts through the murkiness of that mindset. It says, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not, Are you a good person? Well, I like to think that I am. I mean, I try to be kind. You know, I don't kick the dog. Take care of my family. Uh, Try to help out my fellow man where I can. And that's often how we talk about, you hear people talk about at funerals, right? He was a good man. She was a good woman. But this verse tells us that while there might be some people that have some kindness out there, there is none that doeth good and sinneth not. So you could take them to a verse like this and say, well, let me ask you this. Do you believe this is true? Do you believe that though you're a good, you qualify yourself as a good person? Do you think that you also could say that you don't sin, that you've never sinned? Well, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned, right, and come short of the glory of God. Uh, there, there isn't anybody that is sinless, and therein is the problem. You know, how many sins does it take to keep you out of heaven? And the answer is only one. And we all have come short of God's eternal glory. You say, but I'm trying so hard. Well, remember what's being judged here is the works of people. And that's all they have is their own works. They don't have anybody else's works on their behalf. Titus 3, 5, the first part of the verse tells us, It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not about your efforts. It's not about your good deeds. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about what a family man you are. It's not about how how much you contributed to the community or to your local church. It's not about your works that you have done. Ephesians 2 9 follows, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And then verse 9 says, not of works. Whose works? It's not about our works again. Why? Lest any man should boast. Well, there you got it. If it was about our goodness, about our Hail Marys, about our sacrament keeping, whatever you want to call it, okay? About our Sunday school attendance pens, you know? About our baptismal certificate, then people would be strutting around heaven saying, Let me tell you what I did to get in here. There'd be a lot of boasting going on. We know that. It doesn't work that way. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done. Romans 4 4 wants to make it explicitly clear. He says, Now to him that worketh, and again, still talking about the same kind of works, my personal efforts, spiritually speaking. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. And I tell someone, Hey, you know, not only does all your efforts add up to zero in the eyes of God. Actually, the harder you try and the more effort you put into this, you're working into the negative, sir. Because all of your works are adding debt to it. Because ultimately what you're trying to do is say, God, look at me. Look at me. Look at what a good person I'm being. I hope you're taking note of this. You know what you're doing at the same time you're trying to point your goodness? You are just bathing it in pride, aren't you? Oops, that's, a, that's not only a sin God said in Proverbs, that's an abomination to Him. And so you are going into the negative, spiritually speaking, the whole time you're trying to add up credit to get into glory. It's, that is what makes you cursed by trying to be a pretty good guy. Revelation 20, 13 says about this time of the great white throne judgment it says even the sea gave up the dead which were in it and and to someone like john it's like if if someone went overboard you're thinking well there's not much we can do for them you know and and this is the culture when you, they were very careful about what they did with bodies you know they're very respectful and if you ever get the chance to go over to to israel and and you go to jerusalem i mean there's a whole valley with above-ground tombs that are there, and it was considered something that you prepared all your life for to be able to have the proper kind of burial, right? And so he's like, wow, what do you do for someone that went overboard in the sea? Not a problem for God, because even the sea is going to give up the dead. And death and hell, this is a reference to where people go temporarily... Now, you know, if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you're not uh, putting your faith in Christ when you die, you go to hell. You go, go to Sheol, as the Old Testament would put it. And death and hell are going to be delivered up, and the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to what? Their works. Say it again. Whose works. Their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. So there's no intervening time up from here. and There's not even a reprieve, it doesn't seem like, where they get out for a few minutes to catch their breath. This is called the second death. And whosoever was not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And again, folks, according to Scripture, that's where they remain for all eternity because it's called eternal death. Eternal contempt. Revelation 26 tells us, But blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Because for that person, on such the second death hath no power. If you're going to be part of that first resurrection, and we'll get to that in just a minute, you'll never stand at the great white throne judgment. You don't have to worry about having your works judged. And we'll say why in just a minute. But that is not for you. It's only for those whose name is not found in that book. And there won't be anyone standing there and it's like, oh, whew. okay, everybody else's name was, was not in that book, but mine was. I guess I get to go over to this line over here. Nope, every single one at the great white throne judgment goes the same place. Those who experience the second resurrection will, experience, will never experience the second death. Or, I'm sorry, if you experience the second resurrection, and this is the resurrection of the damned or the contempt, you are going to experience the second death is the idea, just to kind of put terminology together here. And so what about this first resurrection? I don't want to be part of that second resurrection where they're pulled out of the sea and out of the ground to stand in front of the great white throne judgment to go to the second death in the lake of fire. So what about this first resurrection? Well, this is the righteous The righteous are resurrected unto life eternal. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, tells this teacher of Israel, He that believeth, and we could say by believe, not just a head knowledge, but a complete dependence on God. God's plan for your soul. He that believeth on the Son hath what? Everlasting life, there it is again, everlasting life. And he that believeth not, the Son, shall not see that life. Why? The wrath of God abideth on him. There's that contempt of God because of the rejection of his Son. You know, there are, there is two resurrections, the resurrection of the, the, the damned, the unsaved, those that are in shame and contempt, and that's called that second resurrection. We talked about it first. The first resurrection is for the righteous, but there's actually three waves to it, we could say. For instance, Jesus is considered the primary resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the what? First fruits." Of them that slept. You think, what in the world is that talking about? First fruits. Well, you have to understand, again, the mindset of the people of Jesus' day, especially of a Jewish culture. Because what they would do is they would go out and do a harvest, right? But there was the, the first gleanings that they would offer unto the Lord. And they actually had a feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And it was offered up to the Lord, and it was saying, but there's more to come, right? But we're, we're giving this to God, and, and, we're, and we're doing this as worship and praise to Him. Well, Jesus signifies that. You say, well, weren't there other people that were resurrected in the Bible that came before that passage in the end of the Gospels where Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, but two things about that. Number one, every one of those individuals who rose physically from the grave like Jesus did, guess what happened to them eventually? They died again, right? And you say, well, what about Enoch? Okay, what about Elijah? Well, they weren't resurrected, they were translated, okay? So, across the board, everyone who has died physically and resurrected up to to Christ, they died again. Well, guess what? Jesus is that first wave, but we know that there's going to be others that will be resurrected uh, before him uh, when he comes or by him when he comes again, but not to the earth when he comes, when he comes in the air. And that's talking about the church, the bride of Christ, talking about us. Remember I said dispensationally, we're in this little in-between period between Uh, when God changed his focus primarily to the Jewish people. And and you see this happen in the book of Acts, where you see they came to the synagogues to the Jewish people, but then they said, I'm going to the Gentiles. The Gospels come to the Gentiles. Peter's working with Cornelius. Uh, Paul goes over to Asia. You have the Philippian jailer, Lydia, over and over again. And we're in that age. Now, Jewish people can be saved right now. We understand that. Neat thing about that is, is they have a distinct privilege of not only becoming part of the seed of Abraham because of their ethnicity, but becoming part of the bride of Christ because of their conversion to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 19, Because I live, ye shall live also. He told his followers that. What an encouragement that is to us. I love to use this when I'm talking to people at a funeral that they know that their loved one knew Christ, had a testimony of salvation, had put their faith in Christ alone for their forgiveness of sins. And I say, listen, not, not only will you see this loved one again, God's promised to pull their body out of the grave, uh, recompile the molecules in a more splendid way than it's ever been, and to reunite the soul with that, that body. There will be a resurrection just like Christ experienced. We're told that in First Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. And so this is the second wave. It's at the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians 4:16 talks about this. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ, and again, I think prepositions are very important here, uh, not just any that are dead, but those that are in Christ, I believe a reference to those who are deceased, but yet part of the church. So believers who in the church age have gone to sleep in the ground, these shall rise first. And that's what's going to happen. There's going to be the graves open and there's going to be this tremendous. up going and then the bible goes on to talk here then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the lord in the air he's in the air he doesn't come to the earth at that time so we're there uh the believers that have have gone on so you know stephen for instance first martyr of the church be in that grouping that will go up and and be there what a what a gathering that will be what a day of rejoicing that will be as we sang about today But then there's a third wave that seems to be indicated at the end of the tribulation. And this is for the Old Testament saints. Remember, the focus goes back in the book of Revelation. Tribulations focus primarily on the Jewish people. you got the 144,000 witnesses. They're all Jewish. You know, it's Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. And so there is obviously another resurrection that's going to take place. Because there's some that come to know Christ and put their faith in Him and turn to the Lord during the tribulation. There are those martyrs that the Bible talks about. That's probably what Revelation 21.4 is talking about when it says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. All this time of sorrow, great sorrow through tribulation. And now there's a great vindication. There's a great reunification. There's a great homecoming that these people are going to enjoy much like the church people have enjoyed. And so, there is a waking up, there is a resurrection, folks, and there is hope for us to be excited about what the Lord has in store for us. For those that are not prepared, for those that have that reckoning and they're just trusting in their own works, oh, my friend, you need to abandon faith in your efforts and you need to trust only in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that's the second group, those who wise up and experience new life or regeneration. We read Titus 3.5 a moment ago, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. But it goes on to say, by the washing of regeneration, there it is. Regeneration just simply means new birth, new life. And the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through who? Jesus Christ, our Savior, right? There's salvation by none other than Jesus Christ. The word wise here in the book of Daniel literally means to be circumspect. You know, the idea of looking around, you're aware of your surroundings, you have an acute awareness of the time that you live in, you're not lulled into a deception by the great deceiver, that is true of lost people right now. There has to be come that awakening by God Himself through His Word and the Spirit of God to quicken someone and make them alive again. And when that happens, there is an amazing transformation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5:17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. I mean, he's radically different. Old things are passed away. He's not trying to impress God with his good deeds. That's that part of the old man. Instead, all things have become new. God, you are so gracious. I would not be able to know you as my father apart from the, the kind and sacrificial work of the Lamb of God on the cross, Jesus Christ. And every day I get up, I'm, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ for being my Savior, to providing me a way into heaven, to being my great high priest. That is the heartbeat of the new creature, isn't it, folks? And so today, are you regenerate? Are you born again? Do you have that new life? Are you, as he describes here, those that are wise in verse 3 and therefore are going to shine like bright, spiritually bright like the firmament? If you haven't yet turned to Christ as your Savior, today you can do so. By believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus alone is the way that you access heaven and eternal life. But then thirdly, there are those who watch out. Because if you do wise up, really, and you become a new creature, you're going to have compassion for those that haven't wised up yet, that haven't been born again. I find myself when I take my grandson places, because he's he's not really as cautious at this age in his life about his own safety as I would like him to be. And that's kind of normal, right, for a little boy. And so when I take him to the park, and even though it's kid-friendly, there's places where he can climb up and walk across, and uh, there might be like a ladder, and it's really designed for someone a little older than him. But I'm, I'm like all over that, and I'm I try to always be with just in an arm's grasp of him because I don't know what he's going to do in a split second, right? And so uh, I've had on numerous occasions had to either vocally or sometimes even physically turn him, right? Now, I don't know about you, but if you know Christ as your Savior, you have loved ones, you have friends, you have neighbors, people you care about. And honestly, you probably wish that you could grab them and turn them into the narrow road that leads to life everlasting, right? But we also know it doesn't work that way. But there is an ability, there is a role for us to turn people. We are to be watching out for them. We are to be warning them. And that's why it says there's a special blessing at the end of verse 3, that they that turn many to righteousness... That's you, that's me, if you know Christ is your Savior today. Those with wisdom, spiritually speaking, are tasked with the responsibility of helping those who lack it. The Bible says the entrance of God's words gives light. They're not going to pick up a Bible on their own. That's why you hand them a tract filled with Scripture verses. They may not come to church. That's why you carry some fresh baked bread over there and you talk to them about how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you give them a Roman's road and say, I hope that you'll read this and let's talk about it. You have wisdom because God has graciously, apart from anything you deserve, given that spiritual wisdom to you. You're a new creature in Christ. And God says, I've tasked you with turning others to righteousness. The tribe of Levi in the Old Testament was the priestly tribe. They were unique in the sense that they were responsible for the sacrifices, the temple worship, and God expected them also to be the conveyors of message and truth. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, it explains how God's covenant was with Levi for life and peace. In other words, Levi, what I've given to you not only gives a sense of fulfilling life, and a sense of peace to you, but you have the opportunity to give true life, abundant life, and eternal life, and peace spiritually to others. You don't have to be as concerned about, you know, plot lines and buildings and things like that. There's a little bit of subsistence farming you need to do, but primarily your job, in the priestly line especially, is to be the individuals that keep the focus on coming back to God and knowing the truth for those that that don't know it. You see, Levi knew what others needed to be reconciled to God and live eternally. He was to communicate that truth. That's why it says, again, in Malachi 2, the law of truth was in his mouth. Maybe some other people who didn't have, you know, they didn't have Bibles in their homes in those days, right? They had, to, they had to go to hear the Scripture read out loud to them. And so it was even more important in that way. And so his goal was to turn many away from iniquity, according to Malachi too. There's that word turn, isn't it? And not just say, you know, you need to clean up your life. You need to turn to God. And when you turn to God, you're turning away from iniquity, aren't you? And why was this all true? Malachi says, because he, again referring to Levi, is the messenger of the Lord. Again, the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, right? You say, well, that was Levi. That's the Old Testament. That doesn't apply to me today. Well, it's a wonderful picture. But if we come to the New Testament, guess what? Peter says, hey, you believers in the church age, you Gentiles, guess what? 1 Peter 2, 5. We also are a holy priesthood. How's that? You know, we don't have a temple today. Yes, you do. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Everywhere you go, the presence of God goes with you because the Holy Spirit's inside of you. It's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Just like the priest that Malachi is talking to, we who have wised up through regeneration, we, it is incumbent upon us to get the message out to others as well we have the same role as the levites we have the privilege to turn many to righteousness and when we do we like daniel 3 12 3 says are going to shine like the stars you know there's a brilliance to the stars that makes them ideal for offering navigation uh, for people who are in the dark and again, back in Bible days, they didn't have GPS, did they? So they were, whether they're going over land or over sea, they got out their sextants and their maps and stuff, and they, they charted the stars, right? And, and those stars helped guide them to their proper destination. And it was even through that new star that it led those wise men to find Christ there in the house in the town of Bethlehem, shortly after his birth. And so today, it is our privilege, but also solemn responsibility to be those stars that shine with the truth of God's word and say, listen, let me just share with you what God's done in my life. Let me share you some scriptures that have transformed my life. And there's a glow. And guess what? People start looking and saying, you know what? I see I see Jesus in you. I see direction that I'm not getting from other places. I've looked at other forms of religion. I've read books by people that were agnostics and atheists. I've read things about people that were Muslims and Hindu and Baha'i. You know what? But it never rang true. But now, when I hear you talk about the Word of God, and I see Jesus in you, the transformation in your life, I realize this is what's right. This is the way like one hearing over their shoulder, I hear this is the way, walk ye in it. And we know it's not all about us. It's about God working in that person's heart. No man can come to the Son except the Father which have sent him draw him. We understand that. But we are ambassadors for Christ. And so as it comes to this focus on the end of time, folks, we need to make sure that we never lose sight. There, There is a waking up. We need to, if we know people who are unsaved, or if you're here today under the sound of my voice, and you're not ready for that wake up, realize your body's not just going to rot in the ground for all eternity. It's going to be picked up, and there's going to be a standing. There is going to be a reckoning. You don't want to be part of that second resurrection that ends in second death at the great white throne judgment. You want instead want to be a wise person who wises up and is born again, new birth, regenerates, by turning to Christ alone. And then if you know Christ as your Savior, you'll want to watch out for others and evangelize them and tell them the wonderful good news that transformed your life as well. May God use His Word to transform our lives today. Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these truths from the Chapter of Daniel that we've considered today, but to see its relevance not only for those in Daniel's time and for those that will go into the time of tribulation in the future, but Lord, for us today. Lord, I pray that if there's a soul here today uncertain, if there's someone watching today or listening today that has been trying to prepare for eternity based on their works, Lord, help them to understand that their works are going to cause them to have a spiritual debt rather than a spiritual profitability. Help them to realize today, right now, that the only works that matter is the work of Christ on the cross. That what He did, God the Father saw and was well pleased with. His blood atoned for all the sins of the world. Lord, it's only as we put our faith in Him and His blood on the cross that we can have our sins forgiven and we can have eternal life. Lord, give us a renewed passion and courage and desire to share this wonderful gospel truth with those that we meet day by day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, maybe today you find yourself uncertain of where you'll spend eternity. In a minute, we're going to close out our service by observing the Lord's Supper. This is something that is for those that have wised up, been born again, new birth in Christ, putting their faith completely in the real blood of Christ, the sacrifice of His body on the cross. These represent that. The crackers, the juice represent the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. It's not His body. It's not His blood. It's a visual reminder to us. For believers, as we take this, and internalize it to ourselves, we realize because he lives now, we're going to live also. His death keeps me from having to experience the second death. And there's nothing but appreciation that can help but come out of our soul if we know Christ is our Savior today. But maybe you're here today and you say, I'm not certain that I'm truly saved. Then before you come to the table today, call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You say, I don't know how to do that. A minute... Instruments are going to play. Heads are going to be bowed. Slip out of your seat. Come to where I'm standing. I would love to partner you with someone who will take God's word today and show you how you can be saved. A Christian, you say, maybe I know I'm saved, but I have not been a good steward of someone who has wised up and been born again. I need to make sure I'm watching out for those around me that also need Christ as their Savior. I need to be involved in turning people to righteousness as God gives me divine appointments. I need to have a passion for sharing the truth, just like someone shared with me. And so if God works in your heart, I hope you'll respond. Will you stand with me together with heads bowed, eyes closed?